Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Brian Karwana, who is Director of Encounter World Religions, and he also has a personal site called religionsgeek.com. So it is a uh, pleasure to have the official Religions Geek on the podcast, Brian. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Raj. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here. It's always good to speak with you, and I appreciate the invite. Yes. Well, this isn't our first rodeo, and maybe we'll get into that uh, as we as we podcast. Uh, our work very much sort of overlaps and intersects uh, in fascinating uh, and probably mysterious ways. But uh, why don't you tell us about uh, what it's like being the director of Encounter World Religions? What is Encounter World Religions? What do you do there? What's that all about? Sure. Uh, being the director of Encounter World Religions is truly one of the great privileges of my life. Uh, Encounter is a center that promotes religious literacy. So we teach people uh, about religions in a non-proselytory fashion. So I educate people about Islam or Buddhism, but small religions too, like Rastafarianism and Zoroastrianism and Wicca. Um, it is called Encounter because we're, po- I mean, right now we're in the middle, of course, of virus, which has uh, changed all of this. But in non-virus worlds, uh, we try to pair um, classes, uh, hopefully insightful classes, and people usually really do like our classes, but we try to pair them with encounters, with uh, experiential learning. So encounter is premised on what I call the four Ps, the people, the places, the practices, and the philosophies. So, uh, for example, our premier program is our Discovery Week that we run every summer for 20 years until last year with the, the virus. Um, but what we did is we would run, um, uh, in one week, we would explore about 11 religions. I would teach a two-hour introduction on Hinduism. But then we would go and visit two or three sites of worship all around the greater Toronto area. And Toronto is a, you know, just a utopia for this kind of work because there are large Hindu temples in Toronto that would you know, rival those in India. There are large uh, Sikh gurdwaras, uh, large mosques, etc. 
Um, and uh, because I have people all week, we can we can go at times where there is community and where there's ritual. And so we uh, we have the classes, so you know what you're doing. But then you can go and see it, and you can sometimes engage in the ritual. Uh, we talk with imams, we eat meals, uh, and we just have this week of rich experiences. Uh, that's the premier program, the Discovery Week. But throughout the rest of the year, also I am teaching classes. I'm doing that online now. Uh, sometimes I'm interviewing folks like yourself and other sort of experts from traditions. Uh, and I, I do consulting as well for the police and healthcare workers and others who realize I spoke at a, a high-tech company just a week or two ago because uh, they realized that they need some religious literacy to understand their employees uh, and the customers that they deal with. Could you tell us more about this term, religious literacy? Like, what does that mean and what does that look like? Yeah. Uh, you know, increasingly, living in the societies that we do, they're, they're more diverse than they were, you know, 20 years ago, and they're going to be more diverse again in 10 years. And uh, in schools, we teach literacy, right? We feel like you should learn how to read, you should learn how your, your numeracy. Um, <clears throat> but we also teach literacy about things like, well, how does civics works? Uh, how does, you know, how do how, you know, things you need to know how to vote? Um, you should know a bit about geography and stuff like that. And the truth is, we should be doing this on religion. And we don't. And we don't because we're afraid of it. We don't want people in schools proselytizing that you should join this faith or that that tradition is bad. And that sort of uh, teaching, of course, would have no place in a school. Um, but it's important that, you know, if your neighbor has a turban, that you are just literate about that. You have some idea of who they are, um, why they might be wearing a turban, uh, because otherwise what religion becomes is an area of, of, you know, an area where we don't know, an area where there's a lot of ignorance. And we know what happens to people when we don't know something about, you know, a topic or a group of people, which is that the unknown can breed fear and misunderstanding. And so religious literacy aims to say, okay, you need to know, that, you know, to be a functioning person in these multicultural societies, it really helps uh, just to have some basic information, some basic awareness, to have walked into a mosque once in your life. It is amazing um, what simply going in once and talking with the imam and complaining about traffic while you're eating a samosa, you know, uh, these simple things, what they mean for um, dispelling fear and for humanizing each other uh, and making our society, I think, therefore able to function more harmoniously. Oh, that definitely sounds like a resonant um, um a noble aim project, um, something that I think that in certain ways I aim to do in the less overt way. Uh, question for you, uh, just for the sake of, of, of discussion or maybe a, a, a question that may arise in the minds of some listeners, what would you say about the idea that, well, we live in a modern secular world and isn't the answer just leaving religion in, in, in the private sphere? Wouldn't that be a much cleaner, more viable solution to a path forward to, in this global village of ours? Yeah, uh, there's uh, someone on Twitter. Uh, I think it's Megan Goodwin, if I remember right. She has this great line on Twitter um, where she writes, uh, you might be done with religion, but religion's not done with you. <laughs> and her point is that, you know, if you simply uh, watch the news, that religion is everywhere. It is a dominant uh, feature of uh, politics in India. It is a dominant feature of politics in Israel and is a dominant feature 
in uh, the largest, most powerful nation on earth in the United States. It's impossible to understand American politics without religion. Um, so first thing I would say is it's all over the place. Whether you want to attend to it or not, um, it is happening and it's, an effect, it's affecting your world. The second thing I would say is one of the things I teach, uh, I teach this class called the Western Lens, and it is about how those of us in the West have a Protestant conception of religion. Um, and this Protestant conception, you don't have to be Protestant. You can be Catholic or Jewish or atheist or just grow up here. You might be um, you might be Buddhist. But by virtue of growing up in the West, to greater or lesser degrees, we tend to have this, uh, I also call it a Western lens on. And the Western lens is a part of it. It has uh, several features, but one of them is the idea that religion is private. Um, uh, and this comes out of certain histories of what happened in Europe. Uh, but as you encounter religions that did not grow up in the West, whose history is not so interlaced with the West, um, they don't have this Western lens. They have a different lens. They have an Indian lens. They have um, a, a Chinese lens. They have an indigenous lens. Um, and by trying to tell other traditions that they need to look Protestant um, is to distort the way we see them and to force them in categories that don't fit them. Um, you know, I recently, uh, I'm in Canada, and I recently saw, saw a study that 39% of religious minorities in Canada feel uncomfortable speaking up at work. Uh, the number was so high, it was higher than for racial minorities or for, uh, or for women. Um, and you can see how that happens, right? Because you're told it's private. Don't bring it here. Don't talk. And it's so integral to people that when you tell them they have to constantly be bottling up this thing that is central to them, they end up, you know, bottling up a lot more. Um, and, you know, from a work perspective, that's a horrible thing because you want people's input. But it's also just, you know, think about the ethics of that even in a school setting. You don't, you don't want people to feel caged. You want them to feel like they can be authentic. And I think that privacy thing um, is something we need to, to revisit. Yeah, there's so much there that, that resonates. Um, we, have, we both have the good fortune of living in probably statistically the world's most diverse city, Toronto is, with probably half of Toronto not even from Canada. Um, and so there's just such rich opportunities for exploration and cross-pollination. And, you know, we may be a decade or two ahead of, of many other cities on the globe, but nevertheless, um, there we have no shortage of issues, of tensions. And what's the path forward? Because these tensions are not going anywhere. I, I've said this a number of times, uh, teaching undergrads, uh, speaking to the public, that religion is not going anywhere. It is a powerful force in the human condition that we can try to ignore and sanitize through the lens of secularism. But whether or not we are religious, or whether or not we, whatever we feel about religion, much like gravity, it doesn't need us to buy into it to exert force upon us. It is part of the fabric of human life. So I really think it's important to have religious literacy. I just want to share one brief anecdote. I had the great fortune in 2017 for a semester. I was a prof of world religions at Ryerson University in Toronto. It's sort of an urban university of the world's most diverse city. And I was their first official world religions prof that semester. Hugely rewarding experience. And much to my amazement, you know, easily a generation since I was in their shoes, probably 20 years, the city had changed so much. And there was so much more diversity and acceptance of so much. 
but still they were walking on eggshells. And one of the most common modes of feedback I got to my face and in, in the written um, evaluations was uh, they felt so comfortable in the class speaking about these things and they don't feel comfortable speaking about it. Now I was shocked because I realized that, you know, may or may not have the ability to put people at ease, hopefully, especially interviewees on podcasts. But, <laughs> but it was shocking to me that, that they also were like, wow, we can't talk about this anywhere else. And that was really telling to me. And it just came to mind, it flooded into my, my, my mental apparatus as you were sharing the work that you do. Yeah. You know, and there are a couple of places uh, where they are really pushing this idea that you shouldn't have religion in the public sphere. And I'm thinking in particular of France and closer to home here in Toronto in, in Quebec. Um, you know, in Quebec, they have passed a Bill 21 that says you, you simply cannot work for the government if you have visible religious garments. Um, so a woman with a hijab or someone with a turban cannot be a police officer. They cannot uh, work as a nurse. They can't teach grade nine physics. Um, and in France, they're actually contemplating a law that would ban uh, the wearing of the hijab under age 18. Uh, now, I hear it's probably not going to pass all the levels of government. Um, but the, the irony is the more you do this, I think actually what you cause is um, more um, you know, forms of those religiosity that tend to be more extreme and antagonistic because that's how we respond to people telling us we don't belong and to people caging us. Um, so uh, again, for pluralistic societies, if you know pluralism can't just be on skin tone and on uh, you know um, language and gender, um, it's also on our on, on the way we think, on our our ideologies, our outlooks on the world, and we need to find a way to religion is just you know whatever the listener's view is, uh, the listener surely knows that there are many other people who disagree with them, and so the key is to find a society that gives space for that that pluralism uh, without, you know, without conflict. And I, I think trying to stuff it all into boxes is going to backfire. You know, right before this call, I was teaching a course on a rather obscure topic. It's it's a subsection of what might think of as uh, Hindu traditions. Uh, it's a course at the School of Indian Wisdom where I teach uh, on the Mahavijas, these, these esoteric, uh, intense, outrageous, uh, captivating, you know, um, band of, of, of wisdom goddesses uh, really out there at face value, intense. And one of the takeaways uh, of understanding Mahavijas and also understanding the culture from which they hail and, and what they're trying to teach us is the holding of paradox, integration of opposites, uh, a, a, a feminine force being beautiful, benign, and and. and powerfully wrathful at the same time. And, and that's something that's really tricky to do for just about anybody. You know, the mind likes to categorize. The mind needs uh, to put things in certain boxes. You know, the human heart needs an ideology. It needs a, a, a way to, to identify. It needs to understand where one, this meaning-making, right? This meaning-making is storytelling. And we, 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 it's so hard for us to come to terms with the fact that culture is a narrative, we, we tell ourselves and other people have different cultures or different narratives and these worlds collide. Let me not foam with the mouth too much or wax too poetically, whatever it is you, you, you feel that I'm doing. I wanted to touch on, um, and these, these podcasts are never scripted because I really value real uh, uh, immediate intimate conversation. I think that's the power of, of the podcast forum as far as I'm concerned. But, but this, um, this 
idea or you touched on, okay, well, there are nations that are driven by religion and, and the force of religion in the political sphere. Is that primarily where it plays out? Like, where do we, is that what religion's for? To shape cultures and, and uh, policy? Yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, I, I study religions, but after I'd been doing it for a number of years, at some point I remember thinking to myself, actually, I study people uh, because religion is everywhere. It is everywhere from the most intimate element of a person's life because it can uh, have all sorts of guidance about personal hygiene, about sex, uh, about marriage, about child rearing, um, all the way to the most macro things, uh, including the running of countries, or for that matter, your understanding of how the cosmos is organized. Religion is language and history. Uh, It is the way you hold your body. It is sometimes, um, again, items of dress and comportment. Uh, you know, it, it just, in, uh, it's ritual, right? It's, it's about the, the rituals that structure our lives, that mark life cycles. Um, it's what we turn to sometimes in times of great trauma and loss, right? It's what holds us together when we feel like we are completely falling apart. Um, it is sometimes the cause of the greatest heroes that we know. People like Martin Luther King and Gandhi are just... Um, you know, you can't really grasp them without the religiosity. And at the times, at other times, uh, the greatest horrors. Um, you know, the the person, the people who opposed Martin Luther King were fellow Christians who were burning crosses on lawns. Um, yeah, it, again, try and study history without religion, right? What it, I mean, you've just gutted half of it. Um, so I just think religion is everywhere. From how uh, how some mother today is dealing with the impending loss of her child to illness. Uh, to those kind of things that grab the news. Um, so I agree with you. We don't want to just focus on the news. It, it's it's more that it is the, the you know, the massive realm from private life. Uh, right, right now it's Ramadan. There are Muslims around the world who are disciplining themselves every day. I, I blogged about this uh, this week in my Religions Geek blog about how that practice of denying your body all day um, forces a kind of attentiveness to the sort of person you are and who you want to be, right? It's a whole month of trying to reform the self because you you not only don't eat, you try not to gossip, you try not to get angry, to be jealous. You're spending this whole month really working on yourself. Um, so it's all that stuff of self-cultivation all the way to, you know, uh, American politics or whatever. So what is the role of religion in wisdom or life wisdom? And does it perhaps pertain to this self-cultivation you were just speaking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's one of the things, right, is that um, uh, religions are, you know, very large, uh, durable cultural systems that many times have wrestled with some of the big questions of life for thousands of years. Uh, and there is just, you know, uh, acres of learning and thought there. Um, and of course, not all of it uh, agrees, not all of it perhaps we would determine is, you know, we find useful or whatever. Uh, but there's there's immense amounts of, uh, of wisdom about um, actually about all sorts of things. Like I, I often think that, um, you know, certain religions have strengths in different areas, like uh, First Nations traditions or Native American, depending who your, your listeners are. I always notice how much attention their rituals pay to the body and to physical ordeal. Uh, you know, if you think of like a vision quest, uh, vision quest, you, you know, you go out on your own. Sometimes you strip off your clothes, you don't eat, you don't drink, you try not to sleep. Um, and, and in that experience of putting the body through sort of uh, extremes, sometimes something happens. The person has a kind of dream or an animal comes and looks at it and there's some kind of commune, uh, commu- uh, communication. 
uh, think too of like sweat lodges. You know, sweat lodges are go into a hut and there's rocks that have been fire in a fire for six hours and they close all the flaps and pour water over the rock and it steams and it burns you. It hurts. Um, but that physical ordeal is very cathartic. Um, there's other examples like the Sundance as well, where they put the body through certain experiences um, that that sometimes somehow heal us. Um, some of your listeners will have read or seen the Reese Witherspoon movie that I think was called Wild, if I remember right. And it was about a woman who, um, she'd had a tough upbringing. She, um, and she turned to alcohol and drugs and sex. And when she's perhaps in her late 20s, uh, on a whim, she goes on the West Coast Trail, a great big hiking trail that takes months. And she's really not that prepared. And she almost dies like three or four times because it's such an ordeal and she wasn't fully prepared. But she survives. And the memoir was very popular because it sort of saved her life. You know, the, the, the ordeal was cathartic. Cathartic is a very good word. And uh, a lot of indigenous communities have rituals like this that are cathartic. They think about the body. That's just one tradition. Then when you go into uh, some of the traditions of India, of Buddhism, you know, they have different practices. But I think these traditions have thought a lot about about the cultivation of the self, about self-development. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So would you give us some additional insights that you can glean or, or, or that you've, you've arrived at um, having been so heavily engaged in so many world religions for so long? And, and in, in addition to that, maybe you can preface that by, by sharing with us what your background is. Are you a scholar? Are you a practitioner? Are you, um, you know, uh, Say a bit about both of those things, if you will. Sure. Um, yeah, in terms of what I've learned, I, I often, I, I, it's um, in addition to what I've learned, like because I teach the public so much, I have watched too what other people learn and what questions tend to come up over time. Um, and I've often said that the study of, study of religions leads to three kind of um, general areas, three general questions. The first is who is the other? You know, people want to know, okay, I don't know who the Hindus are or the Muslims or whatever. You know, I don't, tell me something about them. And you, you encounter them more authentically by, you know, taking these classes and going to visits and stuff like that. So that's the first is you learn the other more authentically rather than through, you know, stereotypes on the news or something. Uh, the second is uh, um, people don't come for this, but they end up grappling with who am I, uh, right? Because it's like travel. You know, if, if you travel to a foreign country and live there for six or eight months and come home, uh, this happened to me when I was in university. I went and lived in Northern Ireland for a summer. 
And I learned about the Northern Irish, and that's why I went, right, to learn who is the other. But when I came home, I was stunned how much I saw about Canada that I hadn't seen before. Um, it, um, I think it's uh, Max Mueller, one of the early scholars in our field, who said of religions, he who knows one knows none. Um, and I've always said that that's phrased a bit harshly, but truly in discovering other traditions, uh, you learn more about yourself, whether you have a tradition or not. So the first is who is the other? The second is who am I? And the third set of questions I think that people end up coming up with, especially as we get deeper into the programs, is um, who are we? And that means um, what is a person? Because religions really are about everything from um, how do you raise children and how do you deal with trauma and loss and how do you make sense of the unanswerable questions of life um, to how does ritual shape the body? Uh, so it just has a wealth of thoughts about, you know, think of uh, all the, you know, all that stuff about yoga and meditation. I mean, what is that? Um, it's more than this, but it is in many ways a thought on what is a person, right? Who are, who are we? Um, yeah. So the, the, the three big things, yeah. Oh, well, questions of, uh, big questions. I think of this podcast in many ways as a podcast about life's big questions from a space that's free of a particular insistence or sectarianism, right? And so yeah. who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Uh, certainly, you know, these questions are inextricable from religious modes of thought and practice. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, it's, as we've said, I mean, I think religion tries, you know, its nature is that it, it extends into almost all areas of culture, art, right? Aesthetics. Aesthetics are shaped by, by religion. Um, and as I've mentioned earlier, everything from sex to dealing with trauma to gender um, and again to politics. And when I say politics, I think often people think of party politics and that's true. But I also mean, you know, Black Lives Matter and social justice and uh, rights for, in, for Indigenous peoples, um, you know, religions are about justice, and justice is, uh, you know, there's no justice, you know, politics is part of, part of that. So could you tell us a little bit more about your, your relationship with religious traditions? Yeah, uh, I grew up uh, Catholic, I was raised in a, a very devout Catholic family, and I was a devout Catholic into my 20s, uh, and then I, I married a Protestant, uh, so that was probably the first complication, uh, she was from a devout Protestant family, um, and it was quite something to sort of navigate uh, with families and ourselves even early on. Um, then uh, eventually I got pulled into this career sort of accident accidentally or surreptitiously, uh, and I have spent now, you know, 20 years going to all these places, learning about all these traditions um, and learning them, uh, as I've explained, not just in books, but through relationships. You know, I have an imam who I've been friends with for 20 years. Um, when I go into a Sikh Gurdwara, um, it, it is a kind of home for me. Like there's a nostalgia. I shouldn't say quite home, but but I'm not. I'm walking to a place I've been into hundreds of times and I, I look forward to it. And I, you know, it like nostalgia, like a place that feels, um, you know, a sense of belonging or place or something. So now uh, I don't really have a tradition that, that I guess that I can call home. Um, I get something from all of them. Uh, you know, the, the six, uh, they do hospitality so well. You know, the way that they feed you with the, the Langar meal. Um, when I bring people to places of worship, no, no place has 
consistently wowed my guests as much. They've all wowed my guests, but but the six, it's not a competition, but they would score very highly. Um, and then when you go to the Jew, uh, the Jewish synagogue, uh, you know, the Jewish community do, does community so well and tradition so well. Um, you know, they really, they, they just pull, uh, others do as well, but I really noticed that in Judaism, that sense of being a people um, and that sense of tradition that, you know, you're going to have a bar mitzvah, which is what your dad did and your dad's dad and your dad's 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 dad did. Um, and uh, I, I really feel that, I don't know, they, they're, they're wise about that sort of thing. Um, so I get something at all of them, though not the same things. So you are the um, model global citizen in terms of religious literacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I mean, and I didn't seek out to be right. I was just fascinated uh, going into these places. I was like, there are worlds um, here, right in Toronto, that I didn't know about. And uh, and people say that actually, they often say, "I feel like I traveled the world uh, in this program." So. Well, uh, all cultural roads, for some reason, find find lead to Toronto in some way. It's so strange. I discovered this over the years. There's a thread I would, I would like to pick up on from before. You had mentioned, for example, at the time of the recording of this podcast, it happens to be Ramadan, and Ramadan is marked by uh, devout Muslims who are um, engaged in some sort of um, self-restraint, purification, self-inquiry, disciplining the body in some sense. And then you had also mentioned that in Native American traditions, the emphasis on embodiment and, and the results that can be yielded from putting the body through certain ordeals. Do you see a parallel there? And if you do, is that something that you see across religions or just in certain traditions? Uh, sorry, I, uh, a parallel between the indigenous and what was it? Oh, and Ramadan. Uh, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. In fact, that is the connection I made in my blog was that I said, um, I was talking about the fact that Ramadan is more than fasting. Um, and one of the things I think it does is it is this month where um, the body is being used. It's discomfort is being used to focus your mind because the body, when you're hungry, you notice it every hour, right? Of almost every day for a month. Um, And you have to not listen to it. But now you have to be attentive to what you're doing to, I'm not going to do that. And that attentiveness allows you also to say, right, and I'm not supposed to gossip and I'm not supposed to um, show anger. And so there's this month where your body's discomfort is a a tool for making you very conscious about how you're living your life and how you're speaking to others. And it's a month of trying to to shape the self. And it's more than that. I also say that, you know, Ramadan is very communal. Um, People miss the fact that uh, you break fast every night with, you know, uh, a larger group, uh, extended kin or sometimes beyond that. Um, And there's this sense of struggling together you know, uh, if you um, if you go through an ordeal with a group of people, uh, it bonds you to them. Um, uh, I, I re, you know, uh, the, the, the quintessential example of this is the military, that people go in the military for two or four years, um, but 35 years later, there's still a bond there because they went through something together. Now, that's not the same as Ramadan. But nonetheless, for a whole month, people are, are you know, enduring something together. And, and then when it ends and you have Eid, I think there's a sense of we did this together. We all did it, you know, and it, it creates a, a shared experience that is meaningful and, and bonds you to people. So, 
yeah. So Ramadan, as I say, uh, you know, all we hear is it's not eating, but it's so much more. So um, what other themes come to mind from your exposure to the world's religions in terms of a life well lived or what we might think of as wisdom or big questions or you know, really how one should live a human life. It unfortunately often takes an entire human life to begin to understand how to live one. <laughs> but nevertheless, the world's religious traditions um, have much to say about a life well lived. Would you comment on that? Yeah, they do. Um, and of course, they provide their answers are sometimes overlapping and then sometimes different. Uh, one thing that is fairly co- uh, common is the idea that there must be something uh, greater than the self, right, and the satisfaction of the self. Um, and so uh, sticking with Ramadan and Islam, uh, there it's the, you know, the obeying of God's will, right, submitting yourself uh, to God. Um, in in uh, Buddhism, uh, Buddhism, I always think, has one of the more radical answers, right, which is that at some level the self is an illusion, that um, uh, you know that it, that it's really. I mean, Buddhism. It's about using certain practices of watching the mind and watching that monkey mind. That is to provide you with wisdom and insight. That I'm just jumping. My mind is you know zipping between a thousand topics inside of two hours, and I'm just hopping. Like you know, they use the monkey in a cage analogy. That you're you're just hopping from thing to thing to thing. You're being dragged. Um, pulled and yanked this way and the other, and that by watching yourself do that, all of a sudden, you can step back. And by stepping back, it doesn't have that kind of power on you. So that's that's the wisdom of Buddhism. And it, you know, Buddhism is really interesting in that um, I have a sister-in-law who has her PhD in psychology. Uh, she's an atheist. She hasn't didn't have a you know a religious bone in her body and wasn't raised in it. Um, but she teaches uh, Buddhist meditation in psychology classes she teaches because the profession the profession has realized that there is something here healing about this this practice in terms of our mental health. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, there are other practices too about you know generosity, right? I talked about the Sikhs, uh, but all the traditions have that idea of giving you know giving of yourself to others. Um, I do find that overlap that there must be something bigger than the self, but exactly how that, pans out uh, does vary by tradition. Would you say that is uh, at the heart of or a defining feature of call religion? I mean, that earlier you mentioned that, well, quote-unquote, religion touches every aspect of human culture and life. And so, so obviously, this is a question that's plagued our discipline forever. But uh, if you could comment, even in an armchair capacity, what is the commonality? What is religion? Oh, that, that is a really good question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, when I, so when I need a definition, there is someone I turn to. There's an academic named Kevin Shilbrack, who um, is a philosopher of religion. And I don't have it word for word on my tongue. But, um, you know, he says it's something about, um, you know, a series of practices and beliefs and institutions um, that uh, deal with matters of ultimate importance and are grounded in, I think he calls them non-empirical realities. Uh, so it could be a being, a god, but it could be nirvana, which is some kind of realm or something like that. Um, and I think, you know, I have, I have found that sort of useful. Uh, it, it is tricky because I, I think what we struggle with is the sheer diversity of religion, right? Um, religion can be beautiful, and at times, you know, at times it can be horrible, 
Um, because it is, I, I think of it as this really powerful tool. Um, I remember uh, Anne, uh, oh, uh, oh, I've just dropped her name, another academic, I think has talked about religion as like a cultural toolkit. Um, and tools are really powerful and you can use them for all sorts of ways, right? You can use them to build a house, uh, but you can use them to, you know, to break something down. Um, so yeah, what I think of it is because it is oriented towards some kind of ultimate concern that is non-empirical at often, it gives it immense power. It's of ultimate concern. And the question then is, are you using that power in the way of a Martin Luther King or are you using it in the way of the KKK? Um, but you know, it's, uh, you can't ignore it. You know, I mean, by that, I don't mean to say you yourself can't be non-religious. You can, um, but I'm just saying in the world, in the world, you can't ignore it. So you've talked a a bit about, um, the wisdom offered in some of the world's religions. Um, could you share with us on a personal level, what you've learned, what wisdom this journey has yielded you in terms of being engaged in these traditions? Like, what, you know, what do you now know that you didn't 20 years ago or what, 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 what uh, insights have you gleaned from this engagement? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, boy, that is, it's so, uh, there's so much to say. And I think part of it is that for me, it's not been singular. You know, I have taken different things, uh, from Buddhism. I really did learn a lot, um, about what Buddhist, the Buddhist, teach about impermanence and about, um, you know, the jumping around of the mind and, and how, you know, the things that you think you're never going to get over, um, four years later, they've, they change, everything changes. And that acceptance is something they've taught me. Uh, you know, with the six, it really has been, uh, the generosity. Um, I would say something else my job has taught me and my experiences is how much we learn with our bodies. You know, right now I'm teaching everything online. That's the only way it can be done. Um, But I cannot, you know, you cannot convey to someone the same understanding of Hinduism as you can by bringing them to a temple, by um, having them listen to the bells, to watching milk being poured over the the murtis or images, um, the fire being lit, uh, the incense. Um, we, We absorb information with our bodies from other people. You know, information is almost contagious. You learn it from the people around you. Um, I've really realized, you know, if I had to say one thing, the number one thing I've learned is that I think our folk psychology in the West is wrong. And the folk psychology is I am a person, a thinker. Information comes to me from the outside, and I then examine it and make decisions, and then I go act and behave and join groups. And um, I, I actually teach a class where I say, I think this is reverse. Um, I call it BEG. Uh, BEG is an acronym, B-E-G, and it stands for Behavior, Emotions, and Groups. And I think we, th- we think of ourselves as an agent who thinks and decides, and then I engage in certain behaviors. I experience certain emotions. I condemn this, or I say that's okay. And I join certain groups, the book club or the yoga um, group or what have you. Um, and I think it's the other way around that uh, primarily uh, we uh, learn certain emotions growing up, right? You learn to bow your head when someone prays in certain contexts. You learn or uh, you learn to show, um, uh, you know, deference. Uh, Even when people pray, um, I often notice that the tone of voice changes a little bit. These behaviors teach us 
how to think. The thinking is second. We learn certain emotions. Uh, Jews learn early on not to say the name of God. You know, to not speak the name teaches you, again, in the, the think of the bowing of heads uh, or, or things of that nature. Uh, or you learn derision. You learn to laugh at religion, right? Which is a different, and that emotion teaches you how to think, whether to take this seriously, very seriously, or to laugh it off. Um, and of course, you're just born into groups. You're born into a family, you go to a school, you, um, uh, you belong to a, a temple or a, a community, and they, they teach you in many ways how to think. And I think um, our, ourselves are less, we're less these thinkers inside a brain. I think we're, uh, we're porous. We're being permeated by the behaviors, emotions, and groups we're part of, and they shape us uh, and shape our thinking. I think the thinking is often um, um, emergent. It emerges from beg, from behaviors, emotions, and groups. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I I think of that in a different way, or at least it has occurred to me in different language with different concepts. Uh, but I could not agree more in terms of the. Um, modern conceit that we are particles or individuals not to not to denounce individualism as important and the rights and freedoms of the individual of course that's crucial that's foundational and that's that's what's so wonderful about western civilization frankly having said that the pendulum has swung a bit too far in one direction in terms of how we understand the human complex and the human experience and the fact of the matter is that we are born into ideology we are born into modes of thinking and being we imbibe them in embodied ways from the moment we're born and what we don't understand in modern secular western discourse is that we are born in the tent of abraham unconsciously yeah yeah and it it imprints upon us uh, values, ways of seeing, ways of being. Software is needed and software is provided. We can't compute uh, our way into software in adolescence or adulthood. There's this wonderful myth. I'm thinking about this. There's an upcoming course at the school uh, called uh, Sacred Sky. It's uh, planetary myths and their meaning. And for me, the, the power of mythology and the even planetary mythology or astrological mythology, the power is its ability to encode insights about the human experience. And so in the Indian culture, you have the intellect called the buddhi, and then you have the mind called the manas. The mind's a thing full of like emotions and impressions and memories, and, and the buddhi is like your intellectual faculty. It's like your geek center, basically. Mm. You know, more than that, in the mythology, uh, uh, Buddha, the planet that governs Buddhi, Mercury, same word as, as Gautama, like Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha. Buddha is the child of the moon, of the, which represents Manas. Sure. So the intellect is an evolute. It's later on the stage. It's that emotional, social mind that's that's primal that's first from which our intellects emerge but but our intellects are nourished by these systems of thought and belief and values that we imbibe through our very embodied experience uh, in ways we couldn't begin to to cognize rationally 
So, please. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, there's a theorist I really like named Donovan Schaefer. I, I know him not just through his books, but um, he writes that people are like quivering antennas, uh, you know, just seeking out information, uh, not just information, seeking out um, how to wait, how to feel, how to, um, whether to Conditioning. laugh. Yeah, seeking connection. You know, you're born a sponge, I think. And sponges cannot avoid wicking up what's around them. Um, you're just, you just absorb your, your environment constantly and it shapes you and teaches you how to think. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I think we're, you know, the individual is, is a very good frame for thinking about legal rights and freedom. But when you think about how people behave, uh, we're just far more, it's a different set of questions. And I think we're far more uh, interdependent, far more porous. Uh, you know, we're interacting on each other and being interacted on all the time. And uh, yeah, I think it's a, a clearer way of understanding human life. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, since we're close to time for today, is there anything else that you wanted to share about your work or about this whole project called the Life Wisdom Podcast or anything that comes to mind? <laughs> well, the number one thing I uh, maybe I would end with is uh, one of the things I talk about and encounter is um, there's this great Nigerian novelist, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I discovered her through a novel. She writes great novels. Uh, but she also has this great TED Talk, and it's called The Danger of a Single Story. Um, and what she talks about is she says, you know, when she was a kid in Nigeria, uh, they were reasonably well off and they had a house servant and, uh, all she knew about the house servant was a house servant. The boy was poor. That's what her mom told her. You know, she was a little girl. He's poor, They're poor, poor, poor. That's all she knew. And she says, so eventually one day she ended up getting to the boy's house, which I think was in a different village. And the boy had this brother who was like, um, this brilliant artisan, you know, uh, he was just really talented and it hadn't occurred to young her that you could be poor and be brilliant artistically. You know, the, she only had a single story. And later she comes to the United States and she experiences it from the other side because when people learn she's African, they have a single story about Africa. She, she says it's devastation. And that we do this, we flatten people. Um, and so that this circles all the way back to the very beginning about religious literacy is, you know, if we don't know anything about another community, about Muslims or Sikhs or Jews, um, we fall into single stories, and you can see it today with all these conspiracy theories and stuff like that. And the experience of encounter, of encountering people and going to their places, is to break the single story, is to encounter uh, a gay Muslim friend who I have, and, uh, uh, you know, to en encounter a bunch of people from a community, some of whom you really like and some of whom maybe you don't, right? But at that point, there's a, there's a the, the community starts to fill out, and people fill out, even the person you see that they have so many facets. And I think that allows us to see each other's humanity. And I think that is wisdom, right? Is to understand, uh, you mentioned earlier, Raj, that our brains like to categorize. And that's what the single story is. You know, when you know nothing about a group, you look for something, your brain doesn't like the unknown, it will fill in the gaps. And if you don't fill it in with authentic people and with encountering them, uh, the way the brain fills in those gaps can be a real problem. So it's, it's best to try and encounter them and uh, see them in all their in all their richness. Uh, that's well put. Um, it seems to me that um, that that a crucial component of wisdom is seeing things or integrating multiple perspectives. And one thing that comes to mind is wisdom can't possibly be one size fits all. It's unwise to think so itself. Yeah, it yeah, must that's... be situational. 
That's right. That's right. And I think that's one of the perspectives, you know, you're a, a scholar of Indian religions. That is something that the, the, the thinkers in India have been saying for a long time, and it's been a message for many of us. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much uh, for appearing on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Raj. Thanks for the invite. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Brian Carwana, Director of Encounter World Religions, also uh, running a blog on the site religionsgeek.com. Feel free to check him out. His details and links are in the podcast notes. Um, Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the relationship between religion and wisdom. Take care. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.